Tonight we're going to talk about uh, what's going on. How many of you think it's good to be a relevant church and talk about what's going on and then find out what does the Bible say about it? Amen? You know, we all know what happened on my daughter's wedding day. Gay marriage became legal in America. I was praying that they would send it back to the States. Then I was praying that Terry Branstad and our guys would say no and that we'd maybe get some new judges or do something different. You know, when we kicked those judges out, like maybe they, they would be a little more reluctant on this. And, but you know what? They didn't do that. I, I hoped that they would, but I kind of had this sick feeling like they were, they were going to make gay marriage the law of the land. And how many of you just have almost a, almost a feeling like a, a sickness almost feeling in your stomach over it? Did, did the youth need to be released or are they staying up tonight? You're staying up tonight. Very good. And so, you know, I just, I really believe that we need to know what to do and how to respond. I was at the family leader course. You know, I'm the pastor over the board of the family leader. and We had the head of the E-Free denomination. We had the head of the Southern Baptist denomination, the head of the Assembly of God denomination, all for the state of Iowa, and some of the largest pastors in the state uh, we're, we're supposed to be there, and, and they asked me to, to speak and to talk about the pastor's role in politics, and that's the book that I'm writing and, and what I'm going to be speaking on at the summit. And by the way, I got invited to speak at the summit to the pastors, and so that's going to be a great honor to be able to do that. But we talked about gay marriage and the ramifications of it uh, concerning what is it, what's the fallout going to be with all this? What, are, what, what is our proper response uh, to ju- the judge's decision on gay marriage. And what should we do? Well, let's, let's talk about that tonight. Let's pray quick. Let's jump into the word, and we're going to talk about that. So let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you. We ask that you give us clarity of mind, articulation of speech, boldness of spirit, to speak, Father, as your oracle, not of our own, but of your mind. And Father, we pray that each one here would have ears to hear, hearts to receive, and will to do your word tonight. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said... Amen. Well, let's talk. First of all, you got to start out with what we're talking about. We're talking about marriage. We're talking about marriage is not anything except exactly what God says it is. And there's no such thing as gay marriage or this marriage or that marriage. There's only one marriage. Because the creator has the prerogative of defining what he has created. And nobody else. And you know, it says over there in Genesis 2, and I'll just read it, and I can go to numerous scriptures, you know, uh, and we, but the, the, the power of first mention in the scripture is what I like to use. And we can see over there in Genesis 2 and 24, probably one of the clearest scriptures, it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, a man and his wife. That's one male, that's one female. Everybody, everybody's got that. That's not, hard to, that's not hard to understand, is it? You almost have to get a PhD and have permanent head damage to get that wrong. Some of these guys, all these heavy intellectuals from Ivy League schools, law degrees and judges and senators and all these people, it's almost like you've got to work to get stupid sometimes. I'm sorry to say that, but it's really true. And I believe in education. I've got a master's degree. I've got a bachelor's degree. I've got an associate's degree. I've got a Bible school degree. I've got a lot of education too. But you know what? The wisdom of God is different than the wisdom of man. And we need to understand that what God's word says is exactly what it means, is what it says. Let me read it. And it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. 
That is the definition of marriage. And, you know, Matthew 24, we said, and we talked about this the other day, about the seven signs of looking to the fig tree, which was Israel. And we saw that Jesus said in that very highly eschatological chapter, Matthew 24 and verse 38, when he was asked, what will it be like when the Son of Man returns? His answer was very simple. Jesus had a very simple end-time prophetic eschatological theology. And he said this, he said, it will be as it was in the days of Noah. And we know that in the days of Noah, they only thought upon evil continually. And God was grieved, and God said, I'm going to have to destroy the earth. And we can see that he says they were eating and drinking, and it was self-indulgence, and they were marrying and giving in marriage. But wait a minute, Pastor, but I thought marriage was a good thing. Well, marriage and giving in marriage. Giving in marriage means something that's not real clear to us. It's a little counterintuitive. And when you look up, and I, we shared this, but for those who weren't here, I, I feel the need to repeat this that in the Midrash, which is alluded to numerous times, like in the, in the book of Chronicles and uh, other places in the scriptures, and it's called the commentary or the Midrash, but it was the commentaries of the old Jewish sages who wrote the commentary on the scripture in that day who knew what it meant. And they said in the Midrash, the writers said that portion of scripture that says they were marrying and giving in marriage is a reference to them giving same-sex covenant contracts in the days of Noah. And they said it wasn't because of the wickedness of them mating with the angels, if you believe that, and the church fathers did. It's not the wickedness of the violence. It wasn't the wickedness of only thinking upon evil continually. They said the wickedness that brought the judgment of God, the flood and destruction of the world, was the desecration of marriage. When you think about that, the Bible begins with this God making his children, loving them, creating a beautiful creation and putting two people in there and having them married. And he really prepared a nice place for Adam and Eve, wouldn't you say? Paradise, Garden of Eden. And that's how the Bible begins with a marriage. Then the Bible ends with the desecration of marriage. In, in Genesis, we see it. the world comes to this. Marriage gets destroyed, and then creation gets destroyed. Creation gets made. Marriage gets made. The timeline goes to here. Marriage gets destroyed. Creation gets destroyed. We see that Sodom and Gomorrah got destroyed because of the desecration of marriage. We see the days of Noah, they were destroyed because of the desecration of marriage. The Bible says it'll be as it was in the days of Noah. It also says it'll be as it was in the days of Lot. Today we saw, or this week we saw, the desecration of marriage. And I don't know what's going to come after this, whether there be God's judgment. I pray not. But I'm not so foolish, because Noah prepared with fear. And Noah was a man of faith, the Bible says. Fear not that... He has to fear God, but fear that God's going to do just exactly what he said he's going to do. That's what real faith is, is knowing that God does what he says. And he says he's going to bring judgment through his word. He will bring judgment. And if he says he'll bring blessing, and the good news is he'll bring blessing. And those who walk with him will be blessed, and those who don't won't be blessed. So we see in Genesis 6, 5 through 7, God destroys them for their disobedience. And Jesus says it'll be the same way in the last days. There's so many things that we're seeing come to pass. But marriage is paramount. 
The Bible begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve, and it ends with a marriage of the Lamb and the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. It starts with a marriage, it ends with a marriage, and its marriage is all in between. It ends with the creation, the beautiful creation for marriage, and then the desecration of marriage and the destruction of creation. The world will be destroyed with fire, the Bible says. And so we know that there is a great emphasis on marriage in the scriptures. And pastors are legal agents of the state that issue marriage, that, I mean, excuse me, uh, that fulfill and sign off on marriage covenants or contracts. And so we are legal guardians of marriage. We're legal overseers of marriage. We're legal agents of marriage. A lot of you don't know that, that I had to get a license from the state of Iowa to perform marriages. Did, did, did you all know that? Do you all know that that's part of, uh, it's, it's, it's with the state of Iowa. It's not just a clerical, it's not just an ecclesiological thing. It's a, it's a state thing when a man, a, a minister marries, and has to go on a state record, and government and marriage and church are indelibly connected in so many ways. Taxes and inheritance laws and, and all these different things, that uh, insurance and, and, and guardianship and just a host of things where government and Marriage and the church all intersect. But now the question is, and all these ministers from the heads of denominations are sitting in a room in Des Moines, the family leader, and we're talking about what's next. And Chuck Hurley, our head legal counsel at the uh, family leader, he's been an attorney for many years. He's a tremendous Christian. He's also a pastor and an attorney. He's pastored before. He's an elder in his church now. He works at the family leader. Very brilliant man. He says, you know, there's no clear answer right now what's going to happen. But he says, it, whenever you get into sin and don't obey God's you know, laws, there's going to be difficulty and trouble. And so I've got to face this idea if the state says, okay, it's the law of the land. You're going to have to marry homosexuals. Then I'm going to have to make some decisions. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to do some things. And I'm going to have to make some decisions. Do you know what you're going to do yet, Pastor Bill? No. <laughs> Pray for me. Pray for all pastors right now because evangelical pastors are all scratching their heads saying, this could get pretty edgy, and we really need to be in prayer. But what is the proper response? You know, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, not everything is just perfectly uh, the same, every situation. Sometimes the situation, and we're not talking about situational ethics, but certain situations require being led by the Spirit and obeying God to do things in a different way sometimes. And how do I know that? Because look at this. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.1, To everything there is a season, a time, and to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up. That which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to get, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to rend, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time of peace. It's all of God. That's what the Bible says. So what is the proper response? Romans 13, 1 through 5 says that the ministers... The civil servants are the ministers of God. Don't resist them, for they are ministers to your good, and they are for good. 
But then in Daniel 3, 12, uh, 13 through 18, the civil authorities and Nebuchadnezzar said, bow down to the idol. And God says, don't ever bow to an idol. It violates the Ten Commandments. But Romans 13 tells us to obey the civil authorities. So which do you do? I mean, you know, it gets a little complicated for some people. That's where it says, study to show yourself approved. Rightly dividing the word of truth. We've got to rightly divide the scriptures contextually. And then we've got to understand that we always follow the laws of the land until they come into conflict with the laws of our Lord. Can I get an amen? Amen. Because we are told to follow the laws of the land, aren't we? We are told that civil authority is good, aren't we? And do we get rid of civil authority because there's some bad ones? No. Do we get rid of fatherhood and motherhood because some kids, some, some parents abuse their children? No. Fatherhood and motherhood still good. Amen. Do we get rid of every pastor because some of them have been crooks and have slept around and been bad apples? Do we get rid of pa- the concept of pastor? No, we don't get rid of that. It's still good. still right. Just because there's some bad ones doesn't mean the institutions and the offices are not of God and they're not good. Somebody say amen. amen. But we've got to rightly divide when they're in violation of God's law. Because God's law trumps all law. Did you know, even in, in the book of Leviticus, how many of you know that when we appeal to higher courts, that that's in, in there too? It says, tells you when you can't figure out and judge between yourselves, go to the priests and go to the Levites and go to the judges when you can't figure out a judgment. Appeal to a higher law. See, we always appeal to a higher authority. If the authorities on earth, the civil authorities, start doing the wrong thing, you know, just like if you, you, know, you take your case to the local county court, then you go to the state Supreme Court, then you might take it to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's appealing to a higher court that has a greater jurisdiction. How many of you know God's jurisdiction is the universe? And God knows all law, and his laws trump all laws, and he is the God of all power, and omnipresent, and omnipotent, and all-knowing, and he is the one that we ultimately go to to appeal to the higher court, and he trumps everything. So, and then the, if those lower courts uh, decide wrong, then uh, theirs gets overridden by God. So we, we've got to understand, what do we do? You know, the, the king's evil. Well, I'm going to give you six levels of response tonight. And I want you to open up your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. And the first two are very simple responses that are just natural reactions. They're really not responses, but I'm going to just throw them in for interest's sake. So there's two things that usually happen, and the Bible says it happens. The Bible doesn't say it's right, wrong, or indifferent. The Bible just says this is what happens as a response to the evil who might be in authority. And how many of you know right now our Supreme Court judges are operating in evil and using their authority? That's... That's according to the word of God. I'm not making that decision. The word of God declares that. Thou shalt not murder. We're allowing abortion. Marriage between a man and, was between a man and a wife, and now we're sanctioning same-sex marriage. But two things. Proverbs 29.2 says this. This is what happens. This isn't so much a response as much as it is uh, just a reaction. Two natural reactions. Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Say, people mourn. 
In other words, there, there begins to be a, a lack of trust, kind of a murmuring, a mourning, a sadness, a heaviness starts to take place because that's what oppression is. Number two, look what it says, and this is what, this is what preppers do. Is Proverbs 28, 28. Just go up a couple of verses from where you're at right there in 29, 2. Just go back a couple of verses to 28, 28. When the wicked, when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. When they perish, the righteous increase. There is a sense of you want to get out from the oppressive oversight of a wicked government. How, why does everybody want to flee to America? Or they used to. Because... They want to hide or flee or get away from wicked, oppressive, unbiblical, everybody say unbiblical, unbiblical. governance. And so those are two natural reactions is to be mourning and want to go hide from whatever it is that's just, it's oppressive. Those are two natural things and you may find yourself doing that. But now I want to go into two more intentional excuse me, four more intentional and cognitive responses of what we really should be doing when we see things like same-sex marriage being made into law. Turn to me to 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3, and we've all talked about this verse a lot of times. This is a very powerful verse, a very central verse in our Christian walk. And it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings. You know, it's interesting. It says, uh, first of all, you know, first of all, supplications, prayer, intercessions, and then, it, and then the first one that it mentions among all men is kings. It doesn't mention families. It doesn't mention churches. It doesn't even mention soul winning because all those things can be shut down if the king isn't prayed for and right with God. How many of you know what Jonah went to Nineveh and he preached? It was the king who made the edict, we're all going to repent in sackcloth and ashes and we're all going to turn to God. The revival in Nineveh was because of a king. After the Civil War, when Lincoln got up and gave an address and said, we're being judged as a nation. That's why there's a civil war. And we need to have a day of fasting. And they, they didn't work, and they fasted, and they prayed, and there was repentance in the nation, and things turned around. You know, when Jonah went to Nineveh, and he preached repentance to them, the king said, you know what? We need to repent. And the whole nation repented. 150 years later, Nahum went to Nineveh, and they were just as backslidden and wicked as they were in the days of Jonah. And there was no king who led the nation in revival, and God had to destroy Nineveh, and he did. 150 years between the day that Jonah went and preached, I don't know if it was the day, but the 150 years between the time that Jonah went and preached and the time that Nahum went, and God brought judgment destroyed. Abraham Lincoln brought America to repentance at the darkest hour in all of American history. Did you know it's exactly 150 years this year? The exact same number of days 
when Nineveh repented under Jonah, but didn't under Nahum. 150 years. It's 150 years ago. Our king led us in revival. And now I think we hang in the balance. And I don't know that the king we have now will lead us in revival. But we need to be praying, folks. Can I get an amen? I exhort you, therefore, first of all, supplications, prayer, intercessions, and giving of thanks. Be made for all kings. Be made for all men. Excuse me, first kings. For all in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Some translators say that we might have a life conducive to the spreading of the gospel. Some translations, some commentaries say that. For kings and all authority. And look at this, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. In other words, quiet and peaceable, unpersecuted. In all godliness, as a Christian. It's really talking about civil liberty, people. Let me say it again. Quiet and peaceable life. Quiet and peaceable? How many of you think it was quiet and peaceable in Nazi Germany for the Christians? How many of you think it's quiet and peaceable right now for those parts of the world where ISIS is chopping off people's heads that are Christians? That's not quiet and peaceable. We've got to pray for those in authority that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and honesty. In other words, godliness. Christianity is godliness. Can I get an amen? That we might live peaceably as Christians. If you want to live peaceably as Christians, pray for authorities. You can pray for your church. You can pray for your families. You can pray for your need. You can pray for your prosperity. You can pray for your healing. It's all good. It's great. I love it. But you better pray for those in authority. Because nothing else is going to matter. They can't cause revival, but they can sure shut it down. Just look at Europe. All the churches are empty, and the apostasy has taken over the entire land because they chose socialism. We need to understand that we need to pray for those in authority. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. This is good and acceptable. It's good and acceptable that we don't have persecution that we live peaceably. It's good and acceptable that we can live as Christians in all godliness. This is some people, yeah, persecution is good for the church. Well, there's a certain element of truth to that. But that isn't what God wants. God wants people to be saved because in nations where people are persecuted, many times you say, well, China, you know, it's just growing like wild and all kinds of Christians getting saved over there. And, and, and you know why? Because a bunch of Christian missionaries from America where you weren't persecuted could go over there and preach the gospel to them. Somebody say amen. Because there was one place on earth where you could still live peaceably as a Christian. It was called America. And you could send out missionaries and raise millions of dollars to send missionaries all over the world to places like China. That's why there's Christians in China. Because now we're reaping the harvest of many, many seeds of many martyrs and many missionaries of yesteryear. It is what God wants. God wants us to pray for those in authority. God wants us to live peaceably in godliness, unmolested as Christians, you could say, because this is good and well-pleasing to God, for he wishes that all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Can I get an amen? It is so important. So, number one, our greatest response is to live peaceably 
and have liberty and pray for those in authority. It is so important that we pray for those in authority. Response number one. Number two. Well, Pastor Bill, what, what if we've got a Nebuchadnezzar? What if, what, if, what if it just doesn't work? Well, I believe it works, but we just don't work it many times. And what if they start doing like ISIS? Or what if, what if this terrible persecution comes to America and we see things? Well, you know, sometimes when they start making laws like same-sex marriage... It's okay to have abortions, and if you work at a if you work at a hospital, you got to help perform abortions. How, how many of you are just going to say no? I'm not going to perform an abortion. We need to say no. I'm not going to perform a gay marriage. Funny thing, nobody ever goes and asks a Muslim to perform a gay marriage. <laughs> they haven't got any Muslim bakers. And say if you don't, but if you don't provide flowers or or cakes for gay marriages, we're going to put you. That nobody even goes to the Muslim bakeries to try to get them to do gay. They don't go to the Muslim florists to. to I wonder why that is. <laughs> See, they're not going to. One guy went to a gay. Florist or, or baker, gay bakery. He knew the guy was gay, and he ran a bakery. He says, would you come and create for me a cake that we celebrate heterosexual marriage? And he said, no, but nobody is trying to throw him in jail. There's something wrong. There's trouble in River City. There's something corrupt going on. What is the response? Well, the first one I want to talk about is the civil disobedience of the laity. How many of you know we've got examples in the scriptures? Did you know in Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, that Pharaoh said, you're going to get all the midwives and gather them up. We're going to have a meeting, and we're going to tell them to go kill all the babies that are under such and such an age in all of Egypt, because I hear. Among God's people. And we don't need any deliverer rising up and destroying our slave uh, gig we got going on here. We got a pretty good little plantation going here. We like having these Jews be our slaves. We don't need any deliverers messing it all up for us. And you, midwives, you, you need to kill all these young babies that are being born that's been prophesied that the deliverer is going to be one of those babies. You know what they did? They didn't kill them. Civil disobedience among the laity, just common folk that just aren't going to say no. We're not going to do things like that. Somebody say amen. amen. Then there was a time when they marched around. They went and they were going to spy out the land, Jericho. They ran into a harlot. This harlot, they asked, you know, we're going to be marching around the city seven times. It's going to fall. We're going to come in and destroy it. We've got to spy it out. And these two spies ended up having to stay someplace within the walls of the city. And there was a harlot who housed them against her own government. And said, you're going to stay here 
And, and they said, when we come to destroy the city, when you hear those walls, you hear us march around this city seven times, you hear those walls go down, lady, you better let us know where you're at because we're going to kill everything in sight. Grandpa and grandma, uncle and aunt, Freddie and Sally, the kids and the dog and the cat and the rat and everything. And so we need a red scarlet thread hanging out your window so we know not to kill you because you kept us here and you harbored us against your own because, you see, this is a wicked city. And we're trying to get rid of the cancer and bring God on the scene. And you can either side with the devil and his troops or you can side with us. He says, I'm siding with you. I'm going to have to side against my own government to side with God in righteousness. And she did that. And you know, she was saved because she did that. Just the lay, commonal people. Just a prostitute of all people. Committing civil disobedience. Now, I don't like civil disobedience. You've never ever heard me preach this sermon before. You've never heard me talk about this before. But when it comes to gay marriage... We can't obey what the law is saying to do. Amen. We, we adjure to a higher court the law of God. So there's a place for just common old lay people that I see in the Bible, and I'm rightly dividing it. I'm going to divide it into different categories. Just common, you know, the guys sitting next to you, there's a time where you're going to have to not obey certain things to be in obedience to God. Can I get an amen? All right, let's go on to the next one. Let's go to civil disobedience among the ministers, the clergy. We talked about the laity. Now let's talk about the clergy. Acts 4, 18 through 20. We'll just turn there real quickly. And we can see that there was a man that was healed at the gate. Beautiful. You know, he sat there for 38 years and they walked by him. and The apostles came by and said, you know, that which we have. Silver and gold have we none, but that which we have we give unto you. They grabbed him by the hand. They says, rise up and walk. And he stood up and he walked. And everybody in the temple just came around, 10,000 people any time in the temple in those years. And they were rejoicing, and there was a big revival and a big move of God, and 4,000 people got saved. And you know the story, Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4. We all know that story. But, you know, whenever there's a big move of God, a lot of people get saved. The devil doesn't like it. Do you know that if you preach against homosexuality in, in uh, Canada, it's a hate crime and they'll put you in prison? That's coming our way, folks. Acts 4. And I, I'm sorry, I know this is not one of those exciting sermons. This isn't a stem winder. You're not going to run the aisles on this, I know. <laughs> but Acts 4, 18 through 20, look what it says. They called them, they, they arrested the preachers, and they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus, or in Acts 4.18. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot speak the things which we have seen, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Wow. Then after further threatening, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. Because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. There was a revival going on. Amen. And you can see there's, there's numerous places in the book of Acts where this was taking place. We can go to Acts 5, 27 and 29. After the death of Ananias and Sapphira, who held back part of the offering and dropped dead, and fear came upon all the people, and the disciples did all these wonderful miracles, and tons of people got saved again. And it's Acts 5, 27 and 29. And look what it says. And when they had brought them 
They set them before the council. Here, these guys are arrested again. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. Wow. See, I'm a big submission to authority guy. How many would agree with that? I've taught on submission and authority probably a thousand to one on this subject. And I've taught you for years and years. We, we always are, you know, encouraging people. Be, be submitted to your parents. Be submitted to the spiritual authorities in your life. Be submitted to the civil authorities' life. And God will bless you. And you know what? That's absolutely true. But first, you, you must be submitted to God, first and foremost, above all things. And if any of those agencies cause you to not be submitted to God, you're going to have to make a decision. And it's always going to have to be for God. Amen. Let's go on to some more Old Testament ministry. Let's go back in the Old Testament. Daniel, the third chapter, 12 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow to the idol. We all know the story really, really well. And, you know, we've heard this story ever since we were little kids. And, and you know, it's, it's been a story. But, but I'm going to just read some. And, and we all know the story. They got called up on the carpet. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up. Now, if ye be ready that at the time that ye hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sack, sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all the kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship it not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God who shall deliver you out of my hands? Oh, that was a great question right there. And who is that God? Well, we're going to introduce him to you, Mr. Mr. Neb. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, let it be known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Of course, we know the rest of the story. They threw him in, killed all the guys that threw him in, burned him to death. And Nebuchadnezzar sitting back there, and he's going, <laughs> what is that? We, how many did we throw in there? Three? I see a fourth one, and he looks like the Son of God. Dancing around in there. Woo! Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and he spake, and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you servants of the Most High God. Oh, a minute ago, they were disobedient bums that need to be killed. It's amazing how their title changed. <laughs> you servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came forth in the midst of the fire, and the princes and the governors and the captains and the kings and the counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was in the hair of their heads sins, neither where their coats changed, nor the smell of fire passed upon them. When this church burnt, they said, all the sermons and all the books in my office, every single thing in this building when it burnt, you know how many years ago it was, they had to completely 
ionize it, deionize it, whatever that is, because everything smelt so burnt. But they went into my office. They said there was no smell of fire. And all my sermons and all my books did not smell like fire. And everything else in the whole church did. How many of you know that God has a way of leaving a precious aroma and a scent? Then Nebuchadnezzar spake. And he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach. You know, this guy is bipolar. <laughs> kind of like Hollywood, you know. Kind of like D.C., you know. And like our judges, yeah. And he spake, Blessed be the God of Shadrach and Meshach. And I, I was just kidding when I said throw him in the fire. Who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. And have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve or worship any god. Now look at this. Civil disobedience causing conversion of the king and revival and change of policy and a whole bunch of good things. Therefore, I decree policy changes when we have civil disobedience and God backs us up. Policy changes. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language that speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach. Now, political correctness changes and goes the other direction. You know, it's not that we can't speak against gay marriage, but now you can't speak against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isn't that amazing how quickly that turned around? See, sometimes God wants us to disobey very publicly, very much in civil disobedience. Not because you're a smart act, not because you're a rebel, but because you're so obedient to God. And you love him so much. Anyway, he speaks amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shall be cut into pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill. If you don't know what dung is, it's, it's, uh, it's in the manure spreader. Because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. What a, what a conversion right there. He went from being against that God to now he's the biggest biggest evangelist for God. See, there's a time to disobey, isn't there? But there's a time to obey, which is like 99% of the time. So we don't don't make this the rule. We make this the exception to the rule. Amen? I'm not here to teach disobedience and rebellion and and bring us all into a curse and, and get us out of submission to authority. No, we, that, that's the mainstay. Once in a great while, we see some bizarre, wicked things, and we can't line up with it. Wow. And then Daniel, in the sixth chapter, we got the same thing going on. We got old Daniel. He's Mr. Excellent. We got in that sixth chapter. He's over these presidents. It says, and then it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these presidents of whom Daniel was first. In other words, he was the top dog in the whole kingdom. And this is under a new king by the name of Darius, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. And then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents. How many of you know God will give you favor? And the princes, because he had an excellent spirit. How many of you know you walk in the Holy Ghost, you'll have an excellent spirit? And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. How many of you know when you walk in the Holy Ghost, you'll be put in positions of authority? Then in verse 4, it says, And the presidents and the princes sought to find a case. They were jealous against Daniel according uh, concerning the kingdom, but they couldn't find, they could find no occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful. 
Neither was there any error or fault found in him. I mean, you can't, find, you can't pin anything on this guy. He doesn't have any skeletons in his closet. How many of you know you walk with God, you won't have skeletons in your closet? Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. You know, they're not persecuting us because of who we are. They're persecuting us because of the word of God that says that marriage is between a man and a woman. It says persecution arises for the word's sake in the parable of the sower. If we live by the word, we become a convicting force in their life, and they don't like it. The gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. And they made this bogus law that you can't pray to anybody but the king. So you know what Daniel did? He went through the window open, wide open, and he prayed three times, probably louder than he ever prayed every day. He prayed three times a day with his windows open to make sure that he got caught and to express his civil disobedience. Well, we know the rest of the story. The king was forced by, they forced his hand and he had to throw him into the lion's den. And of course, God exonerated his preacher president. And then he pulled him out. And then they threw all the wicked legislators in there that made a false law. And took away his religious liberty. Come on, somebody, say amen. Stealing his religious liberty to be able to pray to his God. And so he had to disobey the civil authorities. And then King Darius. Here's another king that gets converted by somebody's civil disobedience. Then King Darius wrote unto all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree. Again, policy changes. That in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. This almost sounds like New Testament prophecy. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. And his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and he rescueth. He worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lion. And our Daniel is Jesus, and he's delivered us from the power of the lion, the lion that goes about seeking whom he may devour. You see, something very powerful in these, in these acts of disobedience, because really, they're acts of obedience. Somebody say amen. Both brought change and re- revival. Civil disobedience, if led by God. Everybody say, if left, led by God. Not some knucklehead that wants to have, a, have an excuse to rebel against authority. But a true God-ordained obedience to God, which brought him into conflict with man, can bring about great blessings. It takes courage. It takes foolishness to rebel. It takes courage to obey in civil disobedience. Can I get an amen? Amen. Then the final level, we talked about Civil disobedience from the laity. We talked about civil disobedience, you know, the laity, just the midwives and the Rahab, the harlots. Now we've got civil disobedience, the apostles saying we're not going to obey man, we'd rather obey God and go ahead and preach. We've got civil disobedience now among uh, the ministers. You know, Daniel was a prophet and he didn't obey and bow to the golden idol. He didn't obey and stop praying to his God. He threw the window open and just did it that much more loud. But then there's a whole nother realm of civil disobedience among the civil authorities themselves. How, how many of you remember back in 1986, uh, I think they called him President Churchesco, 
and it was an Eastern Bloc country where the Christians were being oppressed, and he was a dictator. And the Christians rose up, and the military rose up and executed this horrible communist dictator. But you know that's biblical. Now, here's one that you don't dare try to involve yourself in. You don't dare try to involve yourself in this. There's no vigilanteism against the government to try to execute them. But you know in Judges 3, 12 and 23, there was a man by the name of Ehud sent by God to bring capital punishment and judgment on a wicked king by the name of Eglon. He was a big fat guy, and it says he stuck him with a knife and went all the way through him. Anybody remember that story? Probably not one of those most preached texts in the Bible. Probably one of those obscure parts. It's probably those two pages that are stuck together in your Bible that you have never read. It's one of those really, really obscure stories. And you know, it's kind of gross. I'm not going to read it. You can read it. But you see, he came in as a wicked king, Mr. Eglon, took over God's people, and God led Ehud to go and bring capital punishment. Wasn't that an assassination, Pastor Bill? You know, the word assassination is not in the Bible. But capital punishment means those wicked things that the book of Leviticus says that when wicked people do them, that God says they should be put to death. And you know, you and I are not the civil authorities, so we are never called to do anything like that. Can I get an amen? But you see, Ehud operated as a civil servant and went and brought punishment on a wicked king. Second Kings 9.33-33, Jehu was sent by the prophet Elijah to execute capital punishment on Jezebel. When she stood up in the balcony and he told the two eunuchs to throw her down and then he trampled her with the horse. How many of you know those guys were soldiers? How many of you know that in some bizarre situations, it's even written in our Constitution, that if tyranny were to arise, that's why we have the Second Amendment. And, I, and I'm not implying anything here that to remove, if government becomes tyrannical, that in our Constitution, it is written that we are to deal with that. But I believe that it's the military's job, not the laity, not the clergy, but the military. And we've seen that in judges, we've seen it in kings, we've seen it around the world at different times, that sometimes God will use military forces to rise up and take out wicked despots and dictators. But he doesn't call lay people, doesn't call us to do that, doesn't call ministers to do that. But sometimes God will use militaries within and even military without to remove wicked kings. Can I get an amen? I can give you more examples of that. But that's something you better not even think about touching. Can I get an amen? I mean, that's God's business, and that's the military's business, and that's if God directs somebody in that realm, which I'm not going to touch any of that with a 10-foot pole, but you know what? It's in there. It's in our Bible. It's even in our Constitution. But this is why we need to just pray in the Holy Ghost. Can I get an amen? We need to be praying those things that we know not what to pray for. But he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Can I get an amen? amen. When we pray in tongues, where we know not what we're praying. And we pray out, it says, He who prays in tongues speaks not unto men, but unto God. For no man understands him. How be it in the Spirit? He speaketh mysteries, divine secrets. When you pray in tongues, 
you are praying out the perfect will of God for our nation. And I don't know what all that entails. I don't want to know. I don't want to presume to know or pretend to know or even want to really know. All I want to know is I want to let God take care of it. And all I want to know is that my job is to preach the gospel and stay obedient to the word of God. Can I get an amen? That's what you and I are called to do. And it's not for us to say what needs to be done on, on some certain levels, but it's up to us to take care of our own business and keep ourselves obedient. And the number one thing that we need to be obedient with is praying and preaching and getting people saved right now. That's the most important thing, is that we take time uh, to seek God and lead people to Jesus. The Muslims are being saved at an unprecedented rate. There's more Muslims getting saved than Americans, probably. Can I get an amen? There's a revival going on among the Muslims. And there's amazing things going on. We just, we just need to get, off, get our religious blinders off and find out what, what's God doing and get in line with it. Jump on board. I just, I'd, I'd love to, you know, when we did a big African crusade, we preached in front of 40,000 people. Our, our Muslim bodyguards that were carrying nine millimeters, and of course we didn't have a gun, so I was really glad when we got them saved. <laughs> I was really glad with those, those bodyguards with the AK-47s. Muslims got saved. It's a blessing. Amen. Let's stand up. We're going to be dismissed. We're out of time.